Well, good morning. This is an absolute freebie. I just can't help but think of it every time that I, I sing that song. In the high school that I went to, we had senior projects. I don't even know if they still have senior projects. But uh, in the uh, high school that I went to, we had senior projects. And one of the things that I did as a senior is that I convinced a local Methodist church to let me lead their choir and song. And that was the song that I sang. And if you've ever heard me sing, having me for help singing is a lot like needing help. So as I hear all of you sing that song so wonderfully, I just reflect back on my high school experience and cannot believe that I convinced a local church to let me do that. So, and if that's you, you're never going to get be able to convince me. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James the book of James. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you opening up to the book of James and keeping a copy of God's Word open throughout the sermon. Uh, If you do not have a Bible here with you, we would love for you to just look underneath the seat in front of you, grab one of those, and feel free to take that home with you if you don't have a copy at home that you can call your own. We'd love for you to have that as a way where you can study more about the gospel of Jesus Christ and learn who he is. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in James chapter 2, verse 1. And as we're reading, we're going to read through the whole chapter, but focus our attention on verses 1 through 13. But if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, what I'd like you to do this morning is circle every time you see the word faith. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the law of the kingdom, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, but do, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them away by, out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would increase our faith, that you would drive us into deeper repentance and deeper faith this morning as we turn our attention to your word. Or Father, together, all the believers pray with me that if someone is here and they have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that as we study your word, as your word is preached, that you would do the good work of redeeming grace, that you would open their eyes so that they might see, that you would open their ears so that they might hear that you would write your word upon their heart and cause them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And Father, all of us pray that you would help us to behold wonderful things in your law and to apply them to our lives. Help me now as I preach. Guard my mouth, I pray. And I ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. The workers have nothing to lose but their own chains. They have a world to win. Workers of all countries unite. Some of the most famous words in all the world, the final three sentences of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. Now, for all of our disagreement with Marx, and there is much for the Christian, you might be surprised this morning how much, you have, uh, how much agreement you have with him. He wanted people clothed, adequately paid, trained and educated, treated fairly, regarded as equal. He wanted their needs supplied in a classless society. Is that what James is advocating for here in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13? A classless society where we do not, verse 4, make distinctions among ourselves? I do not think so. I think James is trying to teach us that genuine religion has real faith. Because the one word which dominated the closing two verses of chapter one is conspicuously absent at the beginning of chapter two. In fact, James never uses that word again throughout the rest of his letter, religion. Yet surely, nothing would have been easier for James to now write than the first aspect of true religion that I want all of us to think about, therefore, is partiality. Instead, an entirely new idea is introduced by James. Verse one, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, 
As James begins to set the scene for the rest of his letter in the central teaching section by which he would exhort us this morning. Being Christian for James is not learning how to conform one's outward behavior to a religious pattern. Brothers and sisters, that's one of the most dangerous things for Christian people who are sitting here in front of me. That it is entirely possible for you to learn how to conform all of your behavior to a religious pattern where others think you to be a Christian and you deceive yourself into thinking that because I do religious things, I am a Christian. Which is why so many people, when asked, how do you know that you're a believer, they simply say a list of religious things. I've been baptized. I go to church. I'm a member of a church. I read my Bible every day. I grew up in a Christian household and had Christian parents. James knows that one of the most dangerous things for the early church, one of the dangerous, most dangerous things for the modern church is that we will learn how to simply conform to religious exterior rules and be able to conform to a pattern where we might deceive ourselves into thinking that we are religious because of it. But for James, as we saw last week, religion is a comprehensive word, not only for the external things that we do, but for a heart relationship with God that actually has an outward expression. For James, this heart relationship is, verse one, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, which is why he never again writes to us about religion, but about faith, because he desires for us to move away from an external display to the internal reality, because genuine religion has real faith. And notice first, real faith receives all people. Verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here and in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Genuine religion for James has real implications for how faith plays itself out in daily life. So James says, verse one, my brothers, show no partiality. That is, do not learn how to make distinctions between yourself. Between yourself and the people that you're caring for, the marginalized, vulnerable people that I've been writing to you to care about. Between yourself and the orphan. Between yourself and the widow. Between yourself and the poor. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When you gather together as the people of God, do not make distinctions based upon appearance or wealth or education or race or societal status or occupation. All distinctions the non-Christian world holds up and says will separate and divide us. Because, verse 1, you all hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James is not saying, hey, you're never gonna have friends that are 
not like, you're always going to have friends who are not like you. Everybody's going to be the same kind of friends with everybody. James is saying, when you gather together as the people of God, there are no distinctions made as the people of God based upon external things. Rich or poor, educated or uneducated, married or widowed or orphaned or single, you all hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and are therefore, as the assembled people of God, equal. So James says, show no favoritism when you assemble, because if you do, the genuineness of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is called into question as you react to external things rather than what is of real value. And he tells us what is of real value at the very beginning of chapter two in verse one. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James knows Christians are just as capable as non-Christians as paying attention to external things rather than what is of real value. And we have to remember that as we're reading the book of James. James is not writing to Christians to tell them to know how to distinguish themselves from unbelievers because unbelievers make distinctions. James is writing to Christians and he is telling them, you do not be a people who distinguish yourselves from one another based on external things. So after exhorting them to care for the vulnerable, he then warns them as believers, verse one, my brothers, my fellow Christians, show no partiality at all. Do not treat people differently based on what you can see in the assembled congregation. But I'm convinced that James also knows how easy it is for Christians to say, that's right, I don't do that, and I would never do that. This doesn't apply to me. So he illustrates his point in verse two. For a man man wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, An illustration that all of us immediately understand and is immediately applicable even today. There is nobody in the room who read those words this morning or heard them read each time who did not understand exactly what James is trying to communicate because we have all seen this played out time and time again in our life and in our own experience. And it is always absolutely infuriating. It is infuriating and frustrating because we do not like seeing people treated that way. It is infuriating and frustrating because we don't like being treated that way. And many of us have been treated that way. It is infuriating and frustrating because we don't quite understand why it is that we ourselves treat people that way. Why do we look at them and immediately think these things about them? But it is particularly reprehensible for James when it plays itself out in the context of the local church, the gathered assembly, the very people James is writing to as he talks about faith and daily life and builds all of this towards two questions made assertion in verse four. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Both questions for James assume yes for an answer. Yes, You have made distinctions among yourselves. Yes, you have become judges with evil thoughts. And yes, when you do that, your faith is both prejudice and evil. And my brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. 
while writing to the Christian assembly and teaching them how to align themselves with God's value, James issues a warning to all of those who are present. Biased faith is evil faith. Biased faith is not Christian faith, no matter what the person might say about their faith. James tells them that biased faith is evil faith if there are people that we won't receive into our fellowship or receive into our membership because of their poverty, because of their race, because of their societal status, then we have drawn lines that God does not draw. And he is concerned as he's writing to these people and teaching them how to care for the vulnerable and how to minister to all of those around them that they do not understand this. And he is concerned that we understand this. So he continues to write, verse five, listen, listen, my beloved brothers, listen, my fellow Christians, don't be deceived and think that I'm writing to somebody else. Verse five. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Hear me out, James says. Pay close attention to what I'm saying to you. Socioeconomic status does not save people. God does when he brings them forth by the word of truth, chapter one, verse 18. And the poor that you despise are recipients of God's kingdom. A kingdom God, verse five, has promised to those who love him. Now, if you have your Bible open, I want you to flip over with me to chapter one, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, notice the phrase, which God has promised to those who love him. Same wording, same promise, same inheritance, the same people. Chapter one, verse 12, chapter two, verse five. Those who love him. Trials test our faith and prove or not our steadfastness and therefore our worthiness or not to receive the crown of life because they reveal whether or not we actually love him. If you only love God when things are going well in your life, you do not love God. James is very clear about that. Those who love God, love God in their trial, despite their trial, through their trial. Will you be one of the people who curse God and die? Or will you be one of the people who say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. James tells us that God's people love him despite their trial, in their trial, through their trial, no matter how long it may last. And brothers and sisters, I am aware in a congregation this size that some of you have been in trials far longer than you would have ever wanted to be. But in the midst of those trials, the scripture promises us that God is producing something in you and doing something through you that could never be produced and would never be seen if you did not experience the trial and the hardship that you are experiencing. And poverty, James says, in chapter two, verse five, 
in the world forces us to consider, that's what he says, poverty in the world forces us to consider what God has done for us in the past and what God will do for us in the future and consider whether or not that is enough for us as heirs of God's kingdom, even when he does not provide for us in the present the way that we desire. God, I will love you despite my riches and I will love you in my poverty and I will love you to the end whether I abound or am brought low. Brothers and sisters, if you only love God when you have material wealth and comfort, you do not love God. The crown and the kingdom are for those, James says, who love him Not for those who feel loved by him, because if we're honest, we do not necessarily feel loved by God in trial. And if we're honest, we do not necessarily feel loved by God in poverty. The crown and the kingdom are for those who love him, not because they have suffered enough or because they are wealthy enough, but because they love him. Brothers and sisters, do you love him? And how would you know? You must, verse one, If you love him, hold or have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, James says, the Lord of glory. James tells us, do not make distinctions among yourself as to who's privileged and to who is not when you assemble together, verse two. Do not make distinctions. There are no high-ranking people and low-ranking people in the kingdom of God. There are just the people of God. But there is one person who deserves a special place of honor when we gather together. There is one person who deserves all of our attention and all of our focus. There is one person who should get all of our gaze and all of our emotional energy. That one person is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He alone deserves a special place of honor as we hold the faith, as we have faith that works itself out in the midst of a community that is now made up of young and old, rich and poor, black and white and other, all of these people gathered together. And notice that James assumes that they will all be together hearing these words read. James does not say, hey, Mostly wealthy, middle-class people, when you gather together, make sure you go find poverty-stricken people and tell them that they should gather with you. James assumes that the mostly wealthy, middle-class people will also be accompanied by the poverty-stricken people and that together, the one people of God will worship as they assemble and hold faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He assumes that the one people of God will not be characterized by the things that make them similar this side of eternity, but by the thing that will define them for all eternity, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are here and you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, fellow members of our church in particular, consider with me perhaps, why is it at times that maybe more poverty-stricken people are not here among us? Maybe it's because they're not here or near our church. But is it perhaps that we have made it impossible for them to think that they are with us and among us as the people of God? And if we had unintentionally communicated, whether we wanted to or not, that there is a distinction based on those things. And friend, if you're here today and you're hearing us talk about the assembly and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't quite know what we talk, we're talk. we talking about, we're here to tell you exactly what we mean. 
that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is belief in Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. That faith in Jesus Christ is belief that what he did for us when he lived on the earth was sufficient for us to be saved from our sin. Sin is anything that we do that disobeys God's word, not being or doing what he has called us to do in, his, uh, in the world from his word. And that sin has separated us from God but we can be forgiven of that sin by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, by believing that his life and his death on the cross, that his resurrection and ascension were sufficient for us and that he now is interceding for us and he will bring us safely home. And we are here to tell you, friend, that if you turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus Christ in faith, that you too can be born again by the spirit of God and made a part of this assembly as we gather together as the people of God. You simply just need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The astonishing thing about the gospel that we preach is that there's nothing incredibly astonishing about it. It is simple. Turn and believe. Trust and obey. And God promises us that he will forgive us of all of our sins. James is writing to these people And he tells them that it is that faith that distinguishes them. And if you want to know more about that faith, we would love to talk to you. Come and find one of us after the service today. Find Will, who's presiding. Find me at the tunnel. Find one of the members of the church and say, what is this faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, we would love to open the Bible with you. But for the believers who are here, James is telling us, God honors those who love him. God honors those who love him no matter where they come from, and he makes them all heirs of his kingdom. So James says, as the Christian community, verse two, assembles and aligns itself with God's values, it should honor those who God honors, even the poor. Sadly, though, James knows that Christians will be prone to make distinctions and dishonor the very people that God loves. Verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The uh, the worldly rich that they fawn after are the very people who are taking advantage of them. But when they come into their assembly, they lose their minds. And the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, pays attention to them rather than to the very people who are made in God's image, whom God has sent to be among them. James' reasoning is shockingly pragmatic. Why would you show favoritism to them? Why would you care about the very people who exploit you? Why would you show honor to the people who disrespect Jesus' glorious name and bring reproach upon his reputation, a reputation that you've taken upon yourself by placing your faith in him? Or as one commentator said, one is reminded of the way modern Christians have fawned over celebrities or politicians only to discover later that the influential figure had no intention of redirecting their wealth or influence to genuinely Christian causes. Real faith receives all people, but real faith doesn't fawn after anyone. It follows our Lord Jesus Christ. Real faith receives all people. Notice second, real faith obeys the law of the kingdom. Look with me again in verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Having made his point in verses one through seven, James now turns our attention away from the illustration to the principle that he is trying to drive home. Showing partiality is committing sin. Showing partiality is committing sin by not obeying an explicit command of scripture. So he says, verse eight, if you really fulfill the law of the kingdom, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But what is surprising for careful readers of God's word is that James quotes Leviticus 19.18 instead of Leviticus 19.15, which on first reading is more directly pertinent to his topic, which is why we read all of those verses earlier in our service. If you don't have your Bible open, you can just open your program to the reading from Leviticus chapter 19, or you can turn to Leviticus 19 now. Look with me in verse nine of Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not answer by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in his heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18, is incredibly important to the book of James. In fact, one of the most helpful things you could do this afternoon is take those verses in 9 through 18 of Leviticus 19 and read them while you're reading the book of James. And one of the things you'll see are an an incredible amount of correspondence. Chapter 19, verse 12 is found in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 19, verse 13 is found in chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 19, verse 15, is found in chapter 2, verses 1 and 9. Chapter 19, verse 16, is found in chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 17, is found in chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 19, verse 18, is found in chapter 5, verse 9. And chapter 19, verse 18, is found in chapter 2, verse 8. It is clear that James wants us to think about the Levitical Mosaic law as he's writing to these people. 
It's clear that he wants us to reflect upon what God has revealed as these people are now living their life out in the context of community. And he does not tell them, because you are New Testament Christians, you no longer need the Old Testament law. In fact, he tells them, as New Testament Christians, they need to think about their relationship to that law and how it works itself out in the context of their life. It is clear that James wants us to see how the love for the rich more than the poor breaks God's law and means that we do not love our neighbor truly. But God's will for his people means more than just obeying an isolated command in Leviticus 19. It means conforming with what Jesus himself says is the very core and controlling center of all of the law using Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 himself. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says these very familiar words. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Jesus wants us to see that the distinguishing mark of the people of God is not simply their adherence to the law, but love. Love for God and love for one another, irrespective of where they have come from. That they will love God and they will show that they love God by the love that they have for other people, specifically and especially people who are not like them. People who the world might separate from them. People who might be different than them that those are the very people that they are to show the love of God for and in so doing, show themselves to be lovers of God. James attacks the very idea that one can disobey a portion of that law while still avoiding a guilty verdict to God. James says it's not possible for us to disobey some of God's law and say, you know what, these people are different, but I didn't do the really bad things. And this point is made no more striking than by the choice of the two commands that he uh, highlights for us as he deals with, quote, big sins from the perspective of fallen humans. It's as if James is trying to say, think how foolish it would be for one of us to say today, God, I did not commit adultery. I merely murdered somebody. No big deal. And in so doing, James implies that the objection, I merely gave the rich guy a better seat, will be met with the exact same response in the courts of heaven because there is no such thing as a mere sin. James says that there is no room in the Christian community for those who live in hatred rather than love. And he says, as you experience the temptation to show favoritism, remember the coming judgment and that you are a recipient of God's mercy. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act is those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. People might be tending to think that this is no big deal, not a big sin. But judgment, James tells us, is without mercy to those who have shown partiality and think it is no big deal. Because they are not only not who they think they are, they have treated people that God loves differently than God has commanded them to treat them. But to the one who has shown mercy, James tells us mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, impartiality matters to God. 
And instead of showing judgmental partiality, Christians should show mercy, a mercy that mirrors the mercy that they themselves have received as God's people and now allows them to walk in gospel empowered and freedom in obedience to the law of the kingdom, a law that is referenced five times in six verses in the passage that we've read. I wonder if you noticed it. I want you to read with me again verses 8 through 13, and I want you to underline every time you see the word law. If you really fulfill the law of the kingdom according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Though not all of the principles are the same in the law, James says that they are all equally valid because God is one. Which is why in Leviticus, we see this refrain, and perhaps you noticed it as we read it. I am the Lord your God. 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 James knows that what will happen among the people of God is that they will be prone to not only distinguish among themselves, but to say some things matter in obedience more than others, and some things matter less. And James says that that instinct is a wrong and sinful instinct. If you've broken one part, you've broken all of the parts. And now what we need to do is learn how to fulfill the law of the kingdom by virtue of our relationship to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus Christ done? Jesus Christ has shown mercy to people who deserved no mercy. And he did not distinguish among those people based on what they had to offer him. Jesus poured out merciful love upon people who deserved nothing but judgment and wrath and condemnation. And now he calls those people who have been recipients of that merciful love to pour out that same mercy on all people and to make no distinctions among themselves. Because there is nothing that disqualifies somebody from the kingdom of God except unrepentance and unbelief. But if they repent and they believe, no matter how rich or poor, no matter where they come from, no matter what they might be like in this life, they are a part of God's people. And the one defining characteristic of God's people should be love, to be a loving people who make no distinctions among themselves. So act like people who are free. And how do we know that we are free? We obey the law of God's merciful love in Christ. We love God and we love our neighbor. Because while a Christian deserves judgment, God has shown mercy. And Christians saved by that mercy now extend that mercy to others that they might know that merciful love in Christ. God's undeserved mercy has triumphed over deserved judgment. Now, here's one of the confusing things as I've tried to prepare to preach this text this week. I'm aware that as I've preached this text, that I think that most people in this room, because of the type of congregation we are, and there's a lot to be thankful for, and I'm very thankful, as your pastor will think, doesn't apply because I don't do it. So let me ask you, 
Are there people in the congregation that you treat differently because of how they look or how they smell or where they come from or what they have to offer you? And are there people that you don't invite into your life or your home because of the same thing? You have made distinctions among yourselves. James is not saying everybody will be friends with everybody and no people will group together because of similar interests and likes. James is saying that when we gather together as the one people of God, there is nothing that makes us more the people of God than our faith in Christ. But if there are people that we keep at arm's length because they haven't suffered enough, chapter one, or because they're not wealthy enough, chapter two, then we ourselves do not know what it means to be a part of the people of God. And if there are people that we have distinguished ourselves from because of those things, we treat differently and refuse to bring into our lives, then we do not actually know what it means to experience the merciful love of God. Friends, as you think of the merciful love of God, think of the song that we will sing in a few moments. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam, constantly sin? What father so tender is calling us home in spite of that? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the, cro- the cost. We stood neath a debt when we were poor that we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Marx's closing words were a dream, really, as history has shown, a nightmare. But James' words are a vision not of Christian socialism and not of communism, but of how to fulfill, verse eight, the law of the kingdom. And James is calling the people of God to fulfill the law of the kingdom by loving God and loving others and welcoming all of those people into God's assembly as they gather around Christ and under the banner of the gospel and proclaim that though we deserve death and damnation and condemnation for all of eternity, our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. And at the foot of that cross, there are no distinctions among us. We are all one people in Christ. It is a vision for the people of God to fulfill the law of the kingdom by loving their neighbor as themselves, by loving everybody as themselves. Friend, let me ask you, do you love other people as you love yourself? Do you love other people differently because they are different than you? Believer, James says, repent. Do not trifle with God's word. You are in disobedience to God's law, and you are committing sin. An unbeliever, if that is you, your only hope is the merciful love that is expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. These are not a stirring rally cry for working men and women to join a revolt, to 
push against the social order that keeps them in chains. They are a call for us to assemble as a new society, the people of God. And friend, if you're here and you don't have a church that call your own, we not only invite you to assemble, but we invite you to join us in membership here. The body of Christ will be more beautiful here at Christ Church Westchester by God adding more and more diversity to it. The more different we are, the more beautiful the body is because as we share this life together and learn how to live together in light of the things that make us different and distinguish us, we actually show something to the world that in Christ there is unity. Not unanimity, but there is unity. There is a unity because of the gospel of Christ. Perhaps you have not joined today thinking that God does not command you to join a church in membership. We're here to say that we believe that you have a moral obligation to join the church. We would love for you to join this church. There's gonna be a membership class in a few weeks, but we, friend, encourage you to join a church where you can be in agreement, where you can be in agreement with that church and you can build something beautiful because if you really wanna change the world, it's not by revolting or winning, It's by building something beautiful as we assemble together as the body of Christ so that the unbelieving world might look in and see that in there, there are no distinctions. In there, there are the people of God who have gathered together with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, believing his law and living it out in their lives so that they might together display the beauty of the gospel for all to see and be able to proclaim to everyone, come, come, come all who are weary and heavy laden. Come rich and poor, come young and old, come black and white and other, come Republican and Democrat, come everybody, come. And there at the foot of the cross, receive the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who though he was rich, made himself poor in the incarnation and gave himself up for you when you deserved everlasting pain so that you might know everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of James and we pray that you would help us to apply its wisdom. We confess, Father, that we are less wise than we think ourselves to be and that we stand in desperate need of what you have revealed to us in the word. We ask, God, that you would help us to apply these truths to our lives. And God, we pray together here today as a church that you would bring the broken, the needy, the poor to be among us. Father, we pray that you would also bring the rich, the lost, those who might think themselves to have no need but are desperately needy among us. And that here at Christ Church Westchester, they would both hear the same message, repent and be born again by the spirit of Christ and be among his people. And Father, we pray for ourselves that you would forgive us for all of the prejudice partiality that we have shown, perhaps unintentionally. But Father, if we are honest with ourselves, sometimes intentionally, because we've been scared or people are hard to deal with or they're just so different than us, we have no idea what we do or say. Father, we pray that we would be a hospitable, open, welcoming people and that you would mature us in this. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.